such powerful words for us to sing in praise to you this morning as we prepare to look at your word and what it says to us. What a beautiful song. Just think of the one phrase in it. Jesus died and suffered, suffered for my pardon, and he was raised to overthrow the grave. You gave your life on the cross to purchase our pardon. You gave your life in our place on the cross to purchase our forgiveness, our pardon, and then you rose from the dead, victorious over sin and death. To, you overthrew the grave. Lord, we are here today worshiping you because of what you did to draw near to us, to give your life for us, and to save us. Would you help us now as we look at your word to understand more fully? We pray that your spirit would open our eyes and our hearts to the truth of your word so we would understand more fully how incredible what we were just singing really is. That you gave your life in our place. You who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in you. All praise and honor and glory go to your name, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. You can have a seat now. Well, this morning before we look at a passage of Scripture together from the book of Hebrews, I'd like to take a little excursion into the world of Christology which is just the branch of theology that studies the person, the nature, and the works of Jesus. I think this will be helpful in understanding the importance of this particular passage, which is Hebrews 2, verses 14 through 18. God's Word makes it very clear that Jesus Christ is both fully God and fully man. This was actually officially affirmed as far as the church goes, by the First Council of Nicaea in A.D. 325, where church leaders stated that Jesus is of one substance with the Father, through whom all things came into being, things in heaven and things on earth. The word they chose for of one substance is very specific, and it means that Jesus is the same substance or nature as the Father, not a similar substance. There were actually two different words that could have been chosen, but the one chosen makes it clear he is of the same nature as the Father. The Nicene Creed also says that Christ, who is fully God, <clears throat> became incarnate and became man and suffered and rose again on the third day and ascended to the heavens. Moving forward in history to the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith, it describes Christ's nature this way. It's a little bit long, so bear with me. The Son of God, the second person of the, in the Holy Trinity, being very and eternal God, the brightness of the Father's glory, of one substance and equal with Him who made the world, who upholds and governs all things He has made, did, when the fullness of time was complete, take upon Him man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities of it, 
yet without sin. Being conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the Holy Spirit coming down upon her, and the power of the Most High overshadowing her, and so was made of a woman of the tribe of Judah, of the seed of Abraham and David, according to the Scriptures, so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person, without convention, or excuse me, without conversion, composition, or confusion. Which person, Jesus, is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man? Many passages of Scripture clearly affirm Christ's deity or His divinity, such as Colossians 2, verses 9 and 10, which says, For in Him, Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. That's pretty clear. It's very clear. In Him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. First, uh, excuse me, the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verses 27 through 30 say, this is Jesus speaking, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Greek word translated one in this verse, heis, carries the meaning of a unity or one essence. Clearly, Jesus intended to communicate with those words that he is fully God. John chapter 14, after telling his disciples that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him, and also that knowing and seeing Jesus is knowing and seeing God, the Father, Philip, the disciple Philip still didn't quite get it, So Jesus said very simply, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Despite so many clear references to Christ's deity in the New Testament, there have been through the ages movements questioning whether he is fully God, though none of them will hold up to the clear teaching of Scripture, as we've just looked at, just examined, or to the resurrection, a historical reality which was evidence of God confirming that everything Jesus claimed about himself and what he came to earth to accomplish was absolutely true. So, turning now to claims of Christ's humanity, claims that he is fully human haven't tended to raise as much controversy. In many ways, it seems evident when you read the Gospels that Jesus was a genuine, flesh-and-blood man. But the truth of Christ's complete humanity is incredibly important. One theologian said, if Jesus was not really one of us, humanity has not been united with deity, and we cannot be saved. For the validity of the work accomplished in Christ's death, or at least its applicability to us as human beings, depends upon the reality of his humanity, just as its efficacy depends upon the genuineness of his deity. In other words, Christ could not take our place on the cross as our substitute if he wasn't fully human, and his atoning sacrifice would not have the power to forgive our sins if he wasn't fully God. 
John 1.14 gives us a simple statement of Christ's full humanity. And the Word, capital W, became flesh and dwelt among us. Luke 24.39, the risen Jesus appears to His disciples who were scared and thinking He was a ghost. And Jesus said, See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Through the course of his life, Jesus cried, he bled, he slept, he ate. He did everything that we as humans do except sin and pray for forgiveness. Now, if you would please open your Bibles to Hebrews 2. Hebrews chapter 2, we'll look at verses 14 through 18. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people." For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. This is God's word. A song called One of Us became extremely popular back in 1995. Some of you weren't even born. But this was a song just played on the radio all the time. It was sung by an artist named Joan Osborne. It reached number two on the U.S. Mainstream, mainstream Top 40 charts, number one in Canada, Australia, and Sweden. It's not a Christian song, though at, at first you might wonder when you hear some of the lyrics. Here are some of the words to the, the song, One of Us. If God had a name, what would it be? And would you call it to His face? If you were faced with Him in all His glory... What would you ask if you had just one question? And yeah, yeah, God is great. Yeah, yeah, God is good. And then the chorus. What if God was one of us? Now, at this point, the lyrics get a little weird, and you can definitely tell it's not a Christian song. <laughs> what if God was one of us, just a slob like one of us, just a stranger on the bus trying to make his way home? If God had a face, what would it look like? And would you want to see if seeing meant that you would have to believe in things like heaven and in Jesus and the saints and all the prophets? And it goes on from there, a lot of repetition of the chorus, what if God was one of us? They're interesting lyrics. They don't really give a clear message, do they? But I was so intrigued when I first heard this song, even though it was easy to tell it was not a, a, a song based on orthodox theology, but just the phrase, what if God was one of us, caused me to actually yell at the radio in my car. And you can ask my wife, I do sometimes talk back to the radio, get a little work, worked up. 
And I started yelling at the radio, he is. He is. That's exactly what happened when Jesus came to earth in the incarnation to reveal God's glory, his face to us and to redeem us from the curse and the power of sin and to bring those who repent and trust in him for salvation back home to heaven to live with him, our creator and our savior. He is one of us. Every time I heard the song on the radio, from that point on, it frustrated me just thinking that there were millions of people out there who either didn't realize or refused to acknowledge that Jesus Christ came to earth as flesh and blood, made like his brothers in every respect so he could offer his perfect life for our sinful lives to redeem us. The author of Hebrews was writing to primarily Jewish believers who faced persecution for their faith. His readers knew the Old Testament well, so he wanted them to understand the uniqueness of Jesus Christ in every way. He is the perfect Son of God, greater than the angels, and greater than any prophet, priest, or king that Israel had ever known, because he was literally God, come to earth as a genuine man to save us from our sins. So this is the first point this morning. The author tells us in verses 14 and 15 that Christ became human in every respect to deliver us from death and the devil. That's what this passage tells us. He became human in every respect to deliver us from death and the devil. Just before our passage in verse 13, believers are described by Jesus as the children God has given me. We're described as the children God has given to Jesus. So the opening thought of verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, is that since we the children of God are human, Jesus had to become human in order to redeem us, to be our substitutionary sacrifice. Matthew Henry said, here the wonderful love of God appeared that when Christ knew what he must suffer in our nature and how he must die in it, yet he readily took it upon himself. This is what our Savior did for us. It goes on to say, he himself likewise partook of the same things. This, this verse, this part of the verse has great intentionality. The Greek word used to describe how we as humans share in flesh and blood with each other indicates we're partners who share human nature in common. But the word used to indicate that Jesus partook of our nature actually means he took hold of it. Not just that he shared in it. Jesus took hold of human nature. Christ partaking in flesh and blood is what we call the incarnation. And, and the word incarnation comes from the Latin translation of John 1.14, which in English says, and we quoted this a little earlier, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is where we get the word incarnation. So what was the purpose of the incarnation? Not just to taste food or feel sorrow like a human being, which Christ certainly did. No, Jesus added human nature to his divine nature willingly and voluntarily, intentionally, 
so that he could pay the ultimate price of giving his life on the cross to deliver us from sin. So you might wonder, why doesn't this passage, as we follow it, why doesn't it say immediately after what we just read that this is the purpose of the incarnation? That it certainly is our salvation because Christ died for us certainly is the result of the incarnation and we praise God for our salvation through Jesus' death on the cross. But verse 14 tells us Christ partook in flesh and blood that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Speaking about this verse, John MacArthur says, the only way to destroy Satan was to rob him of his weapon, death, physical death, spiritual death, eternal death. Satan knew that God required death for us because of sin. Death had become the most certain fact of life. That's an interesting statement about just human beings in general. Death had become the most certain fact of life. Satan knew that man, if they remained as they were, would die and go away from God's presence into hell forever. Satan wants to hold on to men until they die because once they're dead, the opportunity for salvation is gone forever. So God had to wrest from Satan the power of death and for that purpose, Jesus came. God had a weapon even more powerful than death, eternal life. And with it, Jesus destroyed death. That's a great statement. In John 11, verses 26, and, uh, excuse me, verses 24 through 26, Martha, whose brother Lazarus had just died, said to Jesus, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you, do you believe this? So <clears throat> if Satan is destroyed, as this verse tells us, why is he still able to influence our world and the people in it? The word Translated destroy is katargeo, or katargeo, Greek word, means to nullify or bring to nothing. This tells us that though Satan is still able to oppose God's purposes in the world to a degree, only as allowed by God's sovereignty, he is a defeated foe. His time is short, his doom is certain. In answering the question, how does Christ's defeat of Satan render him powerless, John Piper says this, it doesn't mean Christians don't die a physical death, sometimes very painful ones, nor does it mean that Satan can't kill us. What it means is that the only weapon the devil can use to destroy us in death is our sin. Nobody goes to hell because they are oppressed by the devil or even possessed by the devil. Nobody goes to hell because they are harassed by the devil or get shot at by the devil or given hallucinations by the devil. These are all smoke screens to hide the one deadly power in Satan's artillery, namely unforgiven sin. The only reason anybody goes to hell is because of their own sin. And all Satan can do is fight to keep you sinning and keep you away from the one who forgives sin. 
If your sins are forgiven and the wrath of God is removed from you and you stand righteous before God in Jesus Christ by faith, then the devil is rendered powerless. That's really good perspective, isn't it? Verse 15 completes the thought telling us that Jesus, through his defeat of Satan, delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So what does it mean to be subject to lifelong slavery by the fear of death? I think, I think we know this intuitively. We're surrounded by death. We hear about it daily in the news, every, every day. It's all over the news. We hear of death in relationships with friends, happens in our families. We all know that eventually we will face death. And somehow we know intuitively that it's not how life was meant to be, right? Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 3.11, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in their hearts. God did not create us to face and fear death the way we do as a result of the fall. So how did Christ free us from this fear? John Calvin wrote, Although we must still meet death, let us nevertheless be calm and serene in living and dying. When we have Christ going before us, if anyone cannot set his mind at rest by disregarding death, that man should know that he has not yet gone far enough in the faith of Christ. I'm going to say that again. If anyone cannot set his mind at rest by disregarding death, that man should know that he has not yet gone far enough in the faith of Christ. If we remember that by death we're called back home, from exile to home, shall we not then be filled with comfort? In other words, if we are afraid of death, which I know I sometimes am, it's hard not to be certain points in time in our lives. Frankly, every time I take an airplane ride, I think about death. <laughs> what it is, just something about a gigantic hunk of metal flying through the sky. So yes, sometimes we're afraid of death, but it, but it reveals to us that our priorities aren't in order. If we can't say, as Paul did, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain, we love this world too much. Paul reminds us in Colossians 1, 13 and 14 that through the incarnation, Jesus rescued us from this world and brought us into his kingdom. I love this passage. It says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. What a beautiful picture. We're already transferred into the kingdom of Jesus from this world, in, at least in the spiritual sense. Verse 16 makes a, an interesting statement in closing this little section. It says, For surely it is not angels he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. So confirming to the early uh, Jewish Christians and to us that Christ didn't come down to rescue angels or to dazzle us in appearance like an angel, impress or dazzle us, but he came to rescue the offspring of Abraham which is those who are saved by grace through faith in Christ. And Hebrews chapters, chapter 11 explains how Abraham died in faith. It's called the chapter of faith often. 
Spurgeon simply says, if Christ had taken upon himself the nature of angels, he could never have made an atonement for man. He stooped lower, didn't he? Lower than the angels to become like us in every respect. Well, moving on to verses 17 and 18 now, we see that, and this is the second point, Christ had to be human in every respect to become our merciful high priest and propitiation. Had to be human in every respect to become our merciful high priest and propitiation. Verse 17 reads, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So why did Christ have to be made like us? And I'll I'll get to these points in a moment. We're not going to go there yet, but this is so that we would benefit from three wonderful results. That he is our high priest forever. He's the propitiation for our sins, offering himself to avert God's judgment against our sin, and he helps us whenever we are tempted. And again, we'll get to those points in a moment, but before we look at those three results, it's interesting to note that the phrase, in every respect, in this passage, refutes an early church heresy known as docetism, which falsely taught that Jesus only appeared to be human. He was really a spiritual being, walking or maybe kind of floating among us. The followers of this sect taught that everything physical was evil. So Jesus, who was sinless, couldn't possibly have inhabited an actual human body. This heresy was strongly refuted because it completely misses the point of this passage, that Jesus had to be fully human to accomplish what this passage tells us that he did. Also, if Jesus wasn't truly human, those who knew him intimately like his disciples surely would have known. They would have been able to to tell. One theologian wrote, those closest to Jesus who lived with him every day regarded him as being as fully human as themselves. They were able to verify for themselves that he was human. And when on one occasion after Jesus' resurrection, there was some question whether he might be a spirit, he invited them to ascertain the genuineness of his humanity for themselves. And he said, look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And Jesus answered those who might have had some question that he was fully human in every respect. So our, our three points, subpoints now, point A is because Jesus became fully human in every respect, he is our high priest forever. This is a result. This is this glorious benefit to us. Because of what he did as a fully God and fully human, he is our high priest forever. The Old Testament, when the high priest went into the Holy of Holies to, act, to offer sacrifices for the sins of the people, he acted as their representative. Jesus could not represent us before the Father if he wasn't truly human. But unlike the other Old Testament high priests who were sinful themselves and had to offer sacrifices for their own sins, Jesus is our sinless high priest forever and the perfect sacrifice 
he offered for our sins was himself on the cross, making him truly the perfect and great high priest forever. Point B is that Christ became human in every respect, substituting his life for ours on the cross, and now he is the propitiation for our sins. This is a result of what Christ did in the flesh. Now he is the propitiation for our sins. A pastor around the turn of the, uh, of the 20th century, Pastor Griffith Thomas said this, the word propitiation is very important. It means that which makes it consistent for God to pardon. The true idea seems to be that God offers to himself the sacrifice of Christ. This sets aside all idea of anything unworthy in God, like anger or offense, and refers to his righteous attitude against sin. His justice could not overlook sin, and his love could not be indifferent to the sinner. And so what his righteousness demanded, his love provided. That's powerful. What a powerful statement. God's justice could not overlook sin, and his love could not be indifferent to the sinner. So what his righteousness demanded, his love provided. Well, finally, verse 18 gives us this great encouragement. It says, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So the third reason Christ had to become like us in every respect, is this is point C, is so he would experience the gamut of human temptations and trials so that now he helps us whenever we are tempted. Christ helps us whenever we are tempted. The, the phrase in every respect is also used in Hebrews 4.15, might be familiar to you, which says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. In both of these passages, the one we're looking at in Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 4.15, the meaning is simply that Jesus became fully human, just like us, in every respect, or it could be translated, in all things. How else could he truly sympathize with our weaknesses? Warren Wiersbe expands on this thought and says, the angels cannot identify with us in our weaknesses and our needs, but Jesus can. He knew what it was like to be a helpless baby, a growing child, a maturing adolescent. He knew the experiences of weariness, hunger, and thirst. He knew what it was like to be despised and rejected, to be lied about and falsely accused. He experienced physical suffering and death. All of this was part of the preparation for his heavenly ministry as high priest. Some might argue and some have argued that because Jesus was tempted, like his 40 days of temptation by Satan in the wilderness, but he never sinned, that he can't truly relate to our human struggles. This is a comment that some have made. He never sinned. So did he really experience true temptation? Going back again to a quote from John MacArthur, he explains very well that actually the opposite is true. He says, Jesus felt the full force of temptation. 
Though we often yield to temptation before we feel its full force, Jesus resisted temptation even when the greatest enticement for yielding had come. Jesus felt everything we will ever feel and more. For example, he felt temptation to a degree that we could not possibly experience. Most of us never know the full degree of resistible temptation simply because we usually succumb long before that degree is reached. That's really an insightful comment, I think. Most of us never know the full degree of resistible temptation because we usually succumb long before that degree is reached. But since Jesus never sinned, he took the full measure of every temptation that came to him, and he was victorious in every trial. So Jesus became fully human to deliver us from eternal death and the devil, and he became human in every respect to become our merciful, faithful high priest who has experienced far greater temptation and suffering than we ever will and sympathizes with all our weaknesses. Praise God for such a Savior. Praise God. Only by becoming a human being could the Son of God conquer death, which we ourselves could never have done. He became man in order to save men and women. When the Son of God, the Creator and Lord of angels, humbled Himself, He passed below angelic nature and stooped even lower, clothing Himself with human nature for the redemption of the human race. Well, in closing, I just want to suggest two ways we can apply this glorious truth that our Savior is not only fully God but fully human to our lives. The first one is this, knowing that Jesus is a real man, real human, when we share the gospel with others, we can answer a question that they may have asked, what if God was one of us? I think that song resonated with so many people because it's a question people ask. What if God was one of us? And we can tell them he actually was not only that, he was God incarnate, come to earth, not to deliver just a message, but to deliver himself up on the cross for our sins and for their sins. So let's look for opportunities, as we should already be doing, to share this gospel message with others we come into contact with. And when we share it, let's remember Jesus is fully God and he's fully human and he can sympathize with all our weaknesses. And you can tell, folks, he, he is one of us, fully, in every respect. But he's also fully God, with the power to forgive sins. And then the last thought is that knowing Jesus is a real man should greatly deepen our devotional and our prayer times. When we draw near to him, we know that he genuinely, fully understands what we are experiencing and he both sympathizes and he cares. He, he understands, he sympathizes, and he cares like no one else cares for us. First Peter 5, verses 6 and 7, which is, a, frankly, it's a great passage to memorize, 
It says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Casting all your anxieties on him. There was a pastor in the late 1800s named Elisha Hoffman, and he had a habit of visiting folks who were really down and out, really struggling or sick, trying to just show them the love of God. One day he visited a woman who was in tremendous pain physically, and she was very discouraged. Hoffman reminded her that she needed to tell Jesus about her problems. She needed to cast her cares, cast her anxieties on Jesus. And it's like a light bulb went on. She'd completely forgotten the simple truth, and so she started repeating the words, yes, I must tell Jesus. Yes, I must tell Jesus. And on his way home, those words kept going through Elisha Hoffman's mind, and he got home and he quickly wrote this hymn, I Must Tell Jesus. I don't know if you know the hymn or not, it's, um, it's one of my favorites, and we'll, we'll sing it sometime. It's a, it's a beautiful hymn, and the, these are some of the words. I must tell Jesus all of my trials. I cannot bear these burdens alone. In my distress, he kindly will help me. He ever loves and cares for his own. Sorry, it's one of those ones that gets to me a little bit. I must tell Jesus, I must tell Jesus, I cannot bear my burdens alone. I must tell Jesus, I must tell Jesus, Jesus can help me, Jesus alone. Maybe this is what some of you need to be reminded of today. Tempted and tried, I need a great Savior, one who can help my burdens to bear. I must tell Jesus, I must tell Jesus, he all my cares and sorrows will share. Let's pray and let's thank the Lord that Jesus became like us in every respect to deliver us from death by his death on the cross and to be our merciful and our faithful high priest forever. Let's pray. Oh, we thank you, Father, for your word, which is truth, which is powerful, which is breathed out by you and able, to, uh, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness so that we'll be equipped for every good work you've prepared in advance for us to do. Thank you for your powerful wonderful word that reminds us this morning in this little passage that Jesus, you are, you are fully God and you became like us in every respect so that you could take our place on the cross and give your sinless life to pay for our wretched, sinful lives and set us free from the, the fear and the power of death and so that you could sympathize with our weaknesses as our faithful and merciful high priest. Lord, thank you for this reminder this morning that we are invited to come and tell you all that is happening in our lives, all that we're struggling with, all that we're confused by. When we're tempted and struggling against that temptation, we're invited to come to you our faithful and merciful high priest, to cast our cares upon you for you care for us. 
to trust in your power at work in us, even as we were singing earlier, that we cannot overcome these temptations, we cannot overcome sin, but Christ in us, yet not I, but Christ in me. We've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer we who live, but you, Jesus, live in us. And you can overcome those temptations and those trials. And you can bring us the comfort because of your perfect care for us that no one else can. So Lord, today may we turn to you, may we cast our cares on you, may we trust in you to continue to work in us, to uh, refine us, to make us more and more like you, our Savior Jesus. You're also our perfect example. Continue to mold us and make us like you in every respect. And we praise you for becoming like us, fully human, to sympathize with our weaknesses and to die for our sins. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. All right. Well, if you would stand, please, I'd like to close with a benediction based on 1 John 4, 2. And now may you trust in, worship, and obey our Savior, Jesus Christ who is fully God and came in the flesh to deliver us from sin and death.